Welcome to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. The transcendent experience of street basketball is the topic of two conversations with Onaje Woodbine, the author of Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. Woodbine grew up in the inner city of Roxbury, Massachusetts, became a skilled basketball player, and attended Yale University on a basketball scholarship. After two years as a star player on the Yale team, he chose a different life path and quit the basketball team. After graduating from Yale, Woodbine earned his Ph.D. in religious studies from Boston University. His book, Black Gods of the Asphalt, presents a social anthropological view of this inner city sport where the coaches often assume the role of father, mentor, and friend. Woodbine contrasts the lessons he learned on the street basketball courts of Roxbury with those he learned at the predominantly white basketball courts and locker rooms of Yale University. In part two of Onaje Woodbine's phone visit with Radio Curious on August 13, 2016 from his home in Andover, Massachusetts, we begin with his description of the anthropological ethnographic approach he used to examine street basketball and how he now uses this as a teaching tool in his work. You know, one of the reasons that I chose ethnography as opposed to um, another approach to religion, and particularly the religion of people who are living in the inner city and in the streets, is because ethnography forces you to participate in the experience. A lot of social scientists assume they can be objective observers of an experience. And, you know, what I discovered is that language is so limited in describing an experience, you know, because language is an abstraction from experience. And the mistake that a lot of ethnographers can make is that they end up mistaking language for the experience itself, right? And this is what a lot of social scientists do, right? So they end up imposing a model onto an experience rather than capturing the experience itself. You know, for me, it was very important to sort of live what it means to be on the court, to put my body um, into that space so that I could avoid stripping this community of its agency and of its feelings and of its experiences. So that's why, for me, Ethnography is such a powerful way to be a scholar. It's almost like scholarship in action. Can you describe what that internalized power brings to you individually, understanding what you said, the words that we use, uh, talking now and listening to each other, impose the model on that experience? Yeah, so, and that was really the hardest part. Because on the one hand, I had to use words to make this experience available to many people who have never been on a basketball court, especially in the inner city. So I had to sort of give language, 
so that outsiders could share in this in some way. Um, And at the same time, I had to avoid the very real risk of stripping this community of its freedom and agency. So in a sense, I was sort of functioning as a bridge. I was doing both. And to be in this space, you know, on on the court, the the feeling was almost overwhelming. You know, I remember walking into uh, a tournament, a streetball tournament in Roxbury that was surrounded by gangs. And, you know, when I walked up to the entry to the actual court, I was terrified. You know, the gang members were around the space. I didn't know what he wanted. I had to sort of turn my body into a pseudo-gangster. You know, I, I, I got really sort of tough. I walked with a little limp. I didn't look people in the eye. You know, but at the same time, when I entered the court, when I passed through that gateway that separates the court from the street, there was this huge moment of relief. You know, I, I felt the weight of the world just come off my shoulders and, you know, I was on the court. It turned into a refuge, you know. And so it was powerful for me to subject myself to those forces um, that for many of the guys, it's unconscious. And that's, you know, I think what was so powerful for me was, was sort of turning what I had already experienced growing up into an object of study, you know, and um, my hope was that in doing so, I'd give myself language to try to understand what was happening, but also give my community, you know, a perspective on themselves that they may not have had prior. What was that perspective that you hoped to share with your community? The What looks to be a common practice is actually uncommon. You know, I wanted to turn the common into the uncommon. I wanted them to realize and to recognize, and outsiders to recognize that they're asking pretty universal questions in these spaces, right? These are not just um, guys who want to make it to the NBA. They're not just motivated by external, you know, economic or racial reasons. That they're asking pretty deep human questions here, questions that we all ask, you know, such as, you know, what happens when somebody gets murdered? Where does their spirit go if they have? Do, do we have spirits? Why? Why is there evil in the world? I mean, why are people getting shot in my neighborhood? And you know, is there a good God? I mean, would God let that happen? You know, um, what is my purpose? Who who am I? You know, what what does it mean to be a descendant of slaves? You know, um, those those kinds of experiences and questions are often overlooked um, in this community by outsiders, and over time, they they almost forget, in the sense that they're well, they don't really realize that they're asking, you know, these kinds of questions in, in the inner city. And so my hope was to show 
you know, the power of the human spirit, even in a space where most people think, you know, it would be extinguished. So when you say uh, those questions, and I yes. certainly, uh, in my experience, uh, have never heard the answers, what does it mean from the perspective of an outsider? You know, I think that most people assume you know, who've never lived in the in the in the inner city that, you know, when they see a group of young black men um on a basketball court or just walking or on the street corner um that they're being motivated for by economic reasons or they're being exploited, you know, um because of their racial and gender makeup. You know, you know. On the one hand, you have sort of liberals who think that you know, well, they, you know, these these people are determined by poverty and race, and so the, how how can we help them out of this? And then on the other hand, you have more conservative thinkers who say, yes, they're being determined um, by race, but it's partly you know their own fault, um, and so forth, and. And really, nobody wants to talk about sort of the agency and the deeper human um, qualities and feelings and experiences of these folks. That yes, you know, they are determined by you know their external environment and circumstances, but there's freedom there. You know, just like we all have. You know, there's there's humanity there, and so. You know, that's what I wanted to show. I wanted to pull back the veil of our assumptions so that, in a sense, we could see ourselves in people we normally might dismiss. When you say nobody wants to talk about it, are those the players on the basketball team or the outsiders? I would say mostly the outsiders. So then let me ask you this. Yes. What does it mean to be a descendant of slaves? Powerful question. Um, You know, and I wouldn't want to answer for everyone, but, you know, one of the things that I found on the court and in these spaces is that it certainly is an injury. Um, It raises more questions about who am I than it answers um it 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 represents for many young men an absence in knowledge of self you know it's like did, did does my history start from the moment of slavery is there anything prior to that and if there is how do i ever access it or become aware of it you know, I I don't know the language that I spoke before or that my ancestors spoke before they arrived in the New World. Um, I don't know which part of Africa I come from. Um, so who am I, really? You know, and and so that that question raises a lot of identity issues. Um, from for some, it, it it feels like an injury. It feels like you know it 
it allows for self-doubt to creep in, um, anger at, you know, those who, and it, you know, who you might per- perceive sort of did the injury or, um, you know, are sort of responsible. Um, and so, you know, you have a lot of this ongoing anger and inner turmoil as a result of that injury that's never been really addressed, you know, by by the larger culture. In this edition of Radio Curious, we are talking in our part two of our conversation with Onaje Woodbine, author of Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. Onaje Woodbine is a... Uh, teacher of uh, philosophy and religion at the Phillips Academy in Andover, Massachusetts. Uh, You are listening to Radio Curious. I'm Barry Vogel. Onaji, I'd like to stay with this issue of uh, questions and ask you about the questions that it has raised in you as an individual to which you've been able to find answers over the course of your uh, youth, your adolescence as a basketball player, your experience in Yale, your experience receiving a Ph.D., the studies that worked for that, and where you are now in this station in your life. Now, thank you for that question, Barry. Um, You know, what I discovered both through my own experience and also through, you know, many conversations with young African-American men on the basketball court is that because there is no physical place where you know, African-Americans can go to necessarily and say, you know, this is my origin, that they have often done it, and I have as well, they often return to a kind of origin in their consciousness and and it often happens at the level of religion right? um, or the or the level of the imagination and so the the sort of source of freedom is in sense of wholeness is not this physical place but a place in the imagination and this happens on the basketball court in large part, in terms of ancestors. You know, when somebody dies, the guys who are still living go on the court in dialogue with that person's spirit through the game of basketball. You know, when they make a shot, they attribute that to the spirit's presence. And so for me, it's no coincidence that Descendants of slaves would be encountering ancestors um, in the, through their imagination on the basketball court as a form of healing. I can't physically go to the grave site of somebody who was a slave, of all of my ancestors who remain nameless, for all of those people who jumped over the ship during the Middle Passage. But in my spirit, I can communicate with them and therefore experience a form of healing 
and the kind of healing that nobody can take away because it's transcendent. It's not of this world. And so I think that's what's happening for many of these guys on the basketball court and for, you know, many African people of African descent or descendants of slaves in general is that they're being very creative at the level of what we might call a religious imagination. So again, using language as an abstraction from experience yes, and imposing a model on those experiences, could you share with us some of your experiences that you uh, have considered? Yeah, sure. So the opportunity to travel to Nigeria while I was in graduate school. And I was reading Invisible Man at the time, which was which added another layer to to my experience. But, you know, I sat down um at the feet of several shamans almost as soon as I had landed in Nigeria because I I um ended up living in a the house of a shaman. And I didn't tell them anything about me. Um, but they proceeded to read me like an open book. You know, they told me about my life and um, you know, the problems I was having and potential solutions. And then they debated sort of, you know, the solutions in a very philosophical manner amongst themselves and it was the most profound thing for me that you know this group of you know Nigerians from the Yoruba tradition um, had this very intellectual philosophical highly philosophical tradition um, that was indigenous to this community um, and that they could they had knowledge of me that you know, I did. I hadn't shared with them, and that that experience changed my perception of myself. But it also gave me a perspective on my ancestors. You know, and the kind of beauty and culture and intellectual traditions that we contributed to the world. Because I had all growing up, I had always been told that Africans had not given anything to the world. So I realized that 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 was a lie. Um, and that was just such a powerful moment in my own awakening and healing process. Um, and then, you know, the second thing that I'll share is on the basketball court itself. You know, uh, when I lost my coach and I lost other people in inner city Roxbury, I withdrew from the world and I, I'll describe myself as being shattered and like broken into many pieces. And when I began to meditate on the basketball court, I would turn the game into a moving meditation. You know, I would be out there for hours holding the ball, you know, moving up and down the court, finding a rhythm, finding a flow interacting with my innermost thoughts and feelings. It was as if the court itself became a, 
kind of glue for myself. It brought the pieces of myself back together again. It's like I I could recreate or re or re- restore you know myself there. Um, and I also communicated with Manny. You know, my coach would passed away in that space. And and the two experiences that I've shared are related because I, you know, years later when I went to Nigeria, I realized that the rituals that I had seen in Nigeria were very similar to what was happening, um, you know, in inner city basketball. What is it about the basketball court itself as opposed to other gatherings of young men? Yes. You know, Within the inner city, at least, the basketball court itself, the physical space, is very symbolic. The lines represent the distinction between the streets, the everyday life of violence in the streets, and something greater. In between the lines, you can be something else. The other thing that is symbolic is that around the court during the streetball tournaments are the names and faces of mostly young men who have died too young and before their time. Um, And then you have the names of the tournaments themselves posted around the, the physical space. Names like Save Our Streets or Sea Murder Tournament or... Um, community awareness tournament, um, you know, Manny Mil- Wilson Memorial. So the the artwork, the choreography of the games themselves, give it an air of of seriousness. That what is being done here is of vital importance. You know, and requires our commitment and deep attention. You know. um, and 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 let me say the other important piece is the music. You know, the the beat. There's always a DJ. You know, who is keeping the rhythm of the space, and the music is so loud that you hardly can hear yourself think or breathe, all you can do is feel in that space and get caught in caught, caught in the, the, the moment of it. And you sort of lose yourself, you know, and, you, and you, you forget about the troubles of the world. You know, so, it, you know, the court in, the, in Roxbury is turned into this, this vehicle for the elevation of your awareness you know, of, of who you are and, and, and you know, what, what, why you're here, you know, which, is, which was very different than, you know, a Yale practice. Well, Najee Woodbine, I want to thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions uh, about you. The first one is, um, can you tell us about an aha or eureka moment that uh, changed your personal life, uh, your view of the world, uh, that affects the way you live now? Yes. So I'm not sure if it was a moment, but more a process. 
um, of becoming aware that if I go deep enough into myself, I can find the world. It's the idea that there's no difference between what is in me and what is outside of me. You know, I discovered through the process of writing the book that all I have to do is look within. What problems are affecting me? What questions does my personal story raise? And through that process of self-discovery, what really shocked me was that I found problems that are in the world, right, that everybody is experiencing and attempting to address in some way. So that has been the real insight for me, is really that we are all, in a sense, human. You know, And this is why I think thinking about social change um, has to be nonviolent. To hurt the other is to hurt myself. So that, for me, is the ethical implication of my discovery. Right? Is that if the if if the other is me, in a very real sense, right? Then, you know, I have to care and treat for the other, even if they are, you know my so-called enemy, um, as, as, if, as if I have to love them as if I love myself. And that, that you know, was really a profound discovery um, that I made through the ethnography and through the whole process of writing the book. And Onaje Woodbine, what would you like to do with the rest of your One Precious Life? I certainly want to write I want to be a choreographer of consciousness. I want to design experiences and move, move physical movement that brings people together and addresses trauma. Um, I want to be a janitor of space. I want to provide spaces or where people find doorways to healing. But... You know, ultimately, you know, I, I believe that my purpose and my goal is to invite people to see that there's humanity in what they would think of as unexpected places or strange places. And finally, Onaje Woodbine, is there a book that you could recommend to our listeners? The book, you know, I'm not a Christian, but... One of the books that has been the most inspiring to me is Howard Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited. And in Thurman's, in Thurman's Jesus and the Disinherited, many people think that Martin Luther King carried this book in his back pocket during the Civil Rights Movement. Thurman argues that the key to resistance of violence to oppression is the knowledge that nobody can make you hate another person. Nobody can make you feel um, a, a particular way, that you are the guardian and the authority over your inner life. Onaje Woodbine, thank you very much for being with us on Radio Curious. Thank you so much for, for having me back.
Unanche Woodbine is the author of Black Gods of the Asphalt, Religion, Hip-Hop, and Street Basketball. You may hear part one of our visit with Unanche Woodbine at radiocurious.org. And the book he recommends is Jesus and the Disinherited by Howard Thurman. This interview was recorded on August 13, 2016. Radio Curious has over 600 archive editions on our website, radiocurious.org, with new editions published regularly. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. Christina Onestead and Yuko Kodama are the assistant producers. I'm host and producer Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.